Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf, and you're listening to my podcast, Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess. In this episode, I sit down with trauma survivor, life coach, and creator of one of my favorite Instagram accounts, Nate Postalweight. In the episode, we discuss healing religious trauma, Nate's incredible and moving story, and the importance of doing inner child work to heal childhood trauma and the power of finding the right therapy for you. But before we begin the episode, I would love to ask you to take a few minutes right now and subscribe to my podcast. It would mean the world to me. And keep sharing your favorite episodes and key takeaways with friends and your family and on social media. And don't forget to grab a copy of my new book, Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess, available on Amazon, at Target, wherever books are sold. And if you send a confirmation of your order to my team at info at drleaf.com, we will send you a copy of the downloadable workbook. And now, on to today's episode. Nate, I am so honored and thrilled and excited to do this interview with you. I've been looking forward to it and you're just, you're amazing. What you've gone through and how you have now reshaped your life and reconceptualized your life into one where you now help others after all the trauma that you experienced is just an amazing story. And with, you know, my work in mind brain research for 38 years now and working with trauma and all the science to have real stories like yourself, just what you've gone through just makes it so real and tangible. And thank you for joining me to share your story with my listeners today. I really appreciate it. It's a huge honor, and I think that they should know how we started this conversation, which yes, is me please holding, do it. Up, holding up the cover of your book and rec- recognizing Have you that got the book? Have you got the book there? I, I uh, have uh, had the book, the, okay. the switch on your brain, and just recognizing that, you know, little Oops. did I know... I've got, the, I've got the one of the Spanish versions here. <laughs> Switch on your brain. There we go. Here it is. As 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 Nate came on, just before we started filming, he held up this book and he said, I've had this book since 2014, you said. Yeah. And who would have known that years ago when I was in such a, a much heavier place and looking at any and every resource possible, that something that gave me comfort then would be something I revisit years later and have a conversation with the person who wrote that book. Like who, who would have ever thought Aww. that? I just think it's the redemption process is really beautiful. 
I think that's incredible. And it, and it just, you know, it makes me so happy to know that that book from so many years ago helped you. And as you say, like what, six, almost seven years later, mm. you here we are talking and it helped you. you. Nate, you're going to unpack a lot of stuff for us today and you're going to help so many people. What? Let's start at this end, the redemption end, as you say. What about understanding about the mind and the brain helped you in terms of trauma? So start from, I know that's, a, that's sort of the end process, but how did that start helping you to reformulate and reconceptualize what you'd gone through? And then we can unpack details. Sure. I think that several years ago, I started doing a lot of my own work because I wasn't getting the appropriate help where I felt like a healthy functioning human. And I think if we grow up in trauma, around trauma, I was diagnosed with CPTSD about 10 years ago, and that's that was my norm. So it wasn't abnormal for me to feel dissociated a lot. It wasn't abnormal for me to feel lost, feel a lot of angst, have a roller coaster with depression. That was my norm. That was what I'd known my whole life. And I think I got to a place where I started to feel like there has to be more beyond what I'm understanding that can actually have an impact. And that's when I dove deep into trauma therapy and I started experiencing with modalities. And I had only done talk therapy up to that point. And that opened up the door where I've become this sponge who is hungry to know any and everything that I can about how my body and my mind has been impacted by what I experience. And I think that to really sum up that desire is, is I tell people often, I spent the first 35, 36 years of my life being tortured inside of my own body. And so when you find resources that help you exit that life, you can't get enough of it because you look and you recognize I'm finally able to breathe. I'm able to have margin. I'm able to finish my sentences with clear thoughts. I'm able to love myself deeply and care about my mind and body and be, feel connected. And when you've known what it's like to never know that, and then you find it, you want to dive in and find every resource you can to validate that experience and keep growing and expanding it. So the understanding that the experiences that we have in life build into our brain physically, that we, mm-hmm. we experience it to, and to understand that the mind is not the brain, that there's an experience through the mind and that it builds into the brain and that and it builds into the body and that if we start seeing that integrated link, it started giving you the ability to be empowered to control how and just start learning to control your life again, get some sort of autonomy in your life again. And you know mm-hmm. that Nate, that just recently I did clinical trials because as you know I do research and I've just my, summarized my most recent clinical trials in my newest book, which is called Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess, coming out very soon and it's out second of March. But in the in my research, what I showed was with I took an in big picture is I took an experimental group and a control group and we went through the random control trial, gold standard, uh, you know, it's all very very high level gold standard research. And the point is that the the experimental group, they came in with huge traumas, huge things going on in their life. And they got a mind, the, the mind management technique that I developed that in Switch on Your Brain, it's called the 21-Day Detox, and I've since then developed an advance, and it's called the Neurocycle, the five steps called the Neurocycle. So they were given that. And just what we saw in the experimental group over a period of nine weeks, which is the time it takes for the brain brain changes in cycles of, of nine weeks, we saw that awareness of, okay, I know now why I'm depressed. I'm not depressed. I'm depressed because of. So going away from the identity of depression or the identity of anxiety or the identity of trauma that I'm not shame, guilt, whatever, but I feel this because of, and here's how I can actually take that and that toxic thought 
and literally identify the warning signals, the behaviors, the root cause, and dismantle that, get the root tree out and reconceptualize it, which is what my work has done all these years, just helping people to understand that. We saw an 81% improvement in how people can actually control anxiety, depression, et cetera, et cetera. So it's what you're saying. It's it's the awareness, and and that's the message I try and bring, and you you, you exemplify that. you've, You've used that in your life in terms of recognizing that this is in my brain, it's in my body, it's in my mind, it's in the experiences I've had, and there is a level of control that you have. Okay, so I'd said all that, and I'm not going to say much more because I wanted to lay the foundation because I wanted to lay that foundation because of what your story is and to so that people understand that you've gone through years and years and years. It hasn't just happened overnight, but it starts you big in a big long story, but how you've now your life is work now is to help other people in trauma. So I want to ask the first question is what do you do now? And then I want us to backtrack to your story. I'm a certified wellness coach and I'm a writer. Those are my two passions that I've combined. And so I share a lot of my writing on social media and we have a very quick growing community of other survivors who have found a safe space to share their experience. What you were talking about when you mentioned the 81% that had the improvement, my immediate response was, in addition to that research, in addition to the program you've put together to clean up your mental mess and have the actual experience of your brain having the validation, my job is to discredit all of the cliches and all of the bad psychology and all of the horrific cycles of unnecessary harm that has come to those of us who have felt apologetic for showing up in the world in a way that we felt like we weren't accepted or loved or cared for. And so I began sharing my story a little over a year ago, thinking, I know that there's more people that can identify with feeling this way. And if we can bond together and build a community around the conversations with trauma, it will really help those behind us, like me, the 12-year-old kid in small town Alabama who truly was hopeless and helpless and did not have a single resource that made him believe that he was okay or valuable or loved. That's my life's mission at this point is to find those that don't have the resources and don't have access to a sense of community where they feel like if this man is telling me that he was me years ago, I'm going to trust that it does get better. Oh. That's amazing. And I encourage everyone to look at the show notes because we'll put the links to Nate's webpage and his Instagram and everything in there so that you can go and find out more and follow him and really learn from it. Okay, so now you've got everyone's appetite wet. What is your story? (laughs) Everyone wants to know what happened. And why you've you've got you've come here? We've started at the end where you've shown that you've taken your research, you've done, you've gained knowledge, and that gaining of that knowledge gave you empowered you to be able to move forward and heal. And you're still healing; it's a lifelong journey. But now you are helping others heal and provide the knowledge that you didn't have access to. So mm. you're at a, at an amazing point in your life where you're touching other people's lives. But what happened prior? I'll go backwards. However you want. It's a huge question. I'm going to let you unpack it however you'd like to. Four and a half years ago, I had a probably the most authentic reckoning I'd ever had with myself where I faced reality. I was 38, just shy of 39 years old. And at that point had been heavily involved in every type of therapy you can imagine for 20 years. And 
the therapy was heavily focused on sex addiction, sexual dysfunction. It was deeply rooted in religion. And I got to a place where having prior had a nervous breakdown years before, I started to feel those symptoms come back. And I just looked at my life and I was like, okay, at this point, I've got 20 years of therapy behind me. I've got all of this EMDR work that I've done for, I mean, over 300 hours of EMDR intensives and just was so exhausted. And when I started to see the symptoms come back, it really scared me of thinking I'm going to have a full on breakdown again. And the one moment of reckoning for me was finally coming face to face with myself and saying the healthiest thing you can do at this point is to come out and live your life as an openly gay man and look at this and recognize that your sexuality has been a topic of conversation that has wounded you so severely and there's never been any healing in all of the messages and understandings that you had about that but in addition to finally coming out and that being the gateway that gave me the freedom inside of my mind and body for the first time ever to actually feel like I was a safe, whole human. And I was highly functioning with a lot of the mental issues that I had. I was extremely successful in my career. I had a 13-year run as a part owner of different real estate brokerages and was always in the top 1% in the country in, in what I was doing because my career gave me a place to hide. It, it was the one area that I felt like I was important or that I, I mattered because I, I, I didn't have that experience internally anywhere. So once I came out, the freedom that came from that opened up all of these pathways inside of me, realizing how much grief was overdue for losing my 20s and 30s, being committed to conversion therapy, which was a big part of my history in my 20s. And that did just a lot more damage. But the the celebration was, I felt integrated. And I understood what it felt like to have one finger touch the other finger and feel skin, or take a deep breath and activate your vagus nerve. Like I, I felt things for the first time in my late 30s. And so since then, it's been a, a constant pursuit of learning and understanding more. I think the, as wonderful as that process was, the one piece that people don't understand unless you've been in this position is the grief that comes with addressing trauma. I sat with myself on a Friday night before knowing I was going to meet with my closest friend and, and come out to him first. And I sat there thinking, if you do this, you're most likely going to be happier than you've ever been. And that's great. But this is also going to come with some pretty significant grief over fighting the wrong battle for a really long time. And, you know, the thing about grief is when we're in it, we start to believe if this hurts this bad, what I've lost, who I've lost, what will never be, surely I'm going to feel better soon enough. And the reality is grief has to cleanse all of that pain in order for us to be present. And it's accepting, I can't get those years back. I can't. And that's what's hard about grief. That has also held me very much accountable to how I live my life now. I can't ever be in a position again where I have passed on 
my well-being the most sacred parts of me for someone else to have control over or to listen to cliches or to have really unconscious responses about people who are in dire need of help so that's kind of been the beautiful awakening and and it's funny because it it has so little to do with my sexuality i'm so unapologetic about being gay for me coming out was way more about taking my life back and silencing people that had should have never had a voice in my life to begin with. That is so powerful. I mean, everything you've just said is just like hit home so much because my son is gay and he went through horrific times as well. And and you and he was uh, he was in his early eight. He was early early first at university where he came out. And it was uh, so. It's, it, this is about your story, not his. But just hearing what you're saying when you spoke about grief, it was it's heartbreaking because you said something about grief. You said so much stuff now that just blew my mind. But in a, in a good way, grief being a cleansing process and the grief of the time that you lost. You know. So you were grieving for all those 20 years of therapy and those 300 hours of EMDR where you were trying to become something that you weren't because that's what people were telling you to become and that it was mm-hmm. that you were grieving that time and it was a cleansing process and how you if I've understood you correctly it was like almost like a transformation into the acceptance that what's important is not so much the, the sexuality because that's just who you are it's a fact it was actually the integration of your personality again the recognition of you being empowered to be you the autonomy of you and the acceptance of you am am i saying it correctly is that sort of kind of i mean it doesn't even begin to explain what you've gone through yeah and i think that i want to relate to other people that it doesn't have to be about sexuality it's about taking back parts of your life that have been traumatized or or are feeling pain and 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 again the piece about me coming out, that was just an afterthought. The biggest areas in my life was the significant childhood trauma that went on that shaped me from five to 14. It was so severe. And at 18, I attempted to share with someone that I felt was safe, a leader, you know, in the religious organization I was, I was involved with. And they, they just weren't, they just weren't equipped And so at that time, I'm sharing all of this severe sexual abuse and and, and assault trauma being in a a foster home for for a time. And the thing about that environment is what stood out to them was if you're having thoughts that you may also be gay, that's what we need to fix. Well, when I'm 18, I already feel so much shame. I I say this all the time. We are not made to experience or process trauma. There's nothing natural about trauma. That is why it's called trauma. So, So when we have a traumatic experience, it alters our mind, our body. And so in, inside, our, our brain goes in one direction, our body goes in the other because they're both in survival. They're both out of whack because they've experienced something that wasn't natural. And then we're walking around carrying this, doing our best to make sense of who we are and find some sort of validation. Well, considering the, 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 the primary trauma I experienced as a child, neglect, physical abuse, that's when I was removed from our home. And there was just an unusual amount of sexual abuse. Neighbors and older gentlemen later on, it was just, just the, the amount, I think I was just born into a generation of a lot of secret hidden sexual trauma, which so many other people are, and we, we, we don't know how abnormal that is. So at 18, you forget this young boy who is willing to 
do whatever anyone says to dissolve the shame from all of this trauma. You've heard me mention the app Blinkist before, probably a few times by now. Well, have you downloaded it? If not, what are you waiting for? It's truly one of the most amazing and useful apps out there and so good for your mental and brain health. Blinkist takes the best key takeaways, the need to know information from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. 8 million people are using Blinkist right now and it has a massive and growing library from self-help, business health to history books. Blinkist has the latest titles from bestsellers as well as the classic non-fiction titles you always meant to read but never had time to. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed non-fiction books, all the books you want and all for one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for my audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash DrLeaf, try it free for seven days and save 25% of your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash DrLeaf to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash DrLeaf. Sorry, I don't want to interrupt you, but I want to say, pick up on something that you said about shame to that, that how you were the victim, you were innocent, but you mm-hmm. felt shame. Mm-hmm. And, and the other thing you said was that the sexuality was not the mind, major thing here. It was this, the early childhood trauma, which is mm-hmm. pervasive. And that early childhood sexual trauma, this, this is also the area, as you know, research that I've been involved in that experience and those experiences have re- rewired the brain because in the, mm-hmm. in that moment, you, you basically rewire the brain to cope and that, that may not look like a healthy treat, may look like a toxic thought that you build as opposed to a healthy one, but that's what your brain did for survival. And you're quite right. It's totally scientific when you say that your brain and your body and your mind, because there's three parts, you know, we, we, our mind is not the same as the brain. The mind and the brain are separate, but they work together and the brain controls the body. So the brain and the body are the physical. So when you build a memory, you have an experience. That experience becomes a bunch of memories in a tree and forms a thought of the sexual trauma. And then if it happens repeatedly, it gets bigger and bigger. And that stores in your mind as this forest of quantum energy. It stores in your brain as a protein tree and it stores in the DNA of, of 37 to 100 trillion cells of your brain and your body. I mean, that's, and then the experience is repeated like you had this thing got bigger and bigger and bigger it's pervasive it's ubiquitous it's across your it affects everything and so I just want to I said that because I want to emphasize what Nate is saying that trauma is this pervasive thing that trauma is something that affects you for your entire life and needs to be re, you need to be reintegrated it's it's and it's and if it's not managed properly which is another part of your story because you've been through a lot of mismanagement and the wrong kind of help unknowingly so you kind of went from one victim victimized situation into another and that just added to the trauma and then it's very real so sorry i didn't want to interrupt you there i just wanted to <laughs> emphasize the scientific side because of the my audience knows that that's what i teach and you are saying everything that is spot on scientifically but here you've experienced it which makes it even more real more than mm-hmm. the science take it away from there do you remember where you were at I, I do. And, and and the thing I want to say about shame is shame really does mirror how beautiful and innocent we are as humans because we default to shame because we can't fathom that it's not our fault. We assume when shame appears and we have that experience, it's so unnatural that our innocence is what makes us default to assuming we are responsible because of how we feel. 
we don't have we don't have the capacity. We're not wired to at, at six to say this person had no right to invade my body this way. This should not have happened. My brain at that point is like not not even one fourth developed. So I don't have the capacity to acknowledge what that is. So shame is going to always be that default. And I want to send that out to everyone listening to make sure that they understand it, it, that, that that's a mirror of how beautiful and fascinating you are as a human that you it doesn't come natural to identify someone else would harm you. That's how innocent we are. So shame is the default. It's the aftermath. So this, you know, I'm this 18 year old young man trying to sort through all of these experiences and the the religious culture I was in, what they really highlighted was when I shared the confusion about my sexuality. And so everything became about that is sin. You need to repent. So I, I literally at 18 years old was repenting over being sexually abused at 12 and 13 years old by a, a, a 40 year old man. And so I believed it again. I'm 18. I've carried the shame for so long and I, I couldn't separate the two that started the conversion therapy process that went on for quite some time with this ultimate goal of if you gut yourself enough, if you restore every relationship you've ever known, if you go through this plethora of really toxic lists of things, then you will at some day, you know, no longer feel this way. And I want to address a myth and something that I feel like is very important very quickly. Recently, someone said, but can't, doesn't, don't you think that the sexual abuse you experienced contributed to your sexuality? Not on any level, on any day, on any month, any year, at any point in my life, did my sexuality have anything to do with being sexually abused? Thank do you for I believe saying that. Thank yeah. you for saying that. And something else that I want to clarify, I saw an so article good. recently, a large publication made a comment where they said they attributed a pedophile, but they said a, a homosexual man. And what was so irritating about that was sexuality has nothing to do with pedophilia. Pedophilia is about control. So what happened to me at 12 and 13 years old, regardless of what that man's sexuality was, that was pedophilia. It did not shape or alter my sexuality. It just damaged me that much more to understand that what what that exchange was was strictly trauma and strictly abuse. There was nothing around sexuality in that experience. So I just wanted to put that out there because there's so many misperceptions. I know. It drives me crazy. And I'm so glad you brought that up because it's the default thing that's in the religious community mainly where they, it's in other communities too. It's, as you say, the immediate thing, oh, were, they were sexually abused as a child and that's why. That is just a myth. It's not science. It's not true. And anyone who's ever experienced sexual abuse will confirm that. And you just confirm that again. So thank you for saying that. And one more thing on that note, the exchange that I had with someone when they were they were asking more questions, they said, it just seems like I know a lot of gay men who were abused. And I said, oh, that's fact, because the level of vulnerability a young gay boy has of already feeling like he is not accepted and not safe in a world where his reality is dismissed and he's taught to suppress is a much higher target and a huge flag for an abuser to handpick and absolutely groom 
a, a young gay kid. So that conversation needs to change. And I want to be a part of the reality of what people are saying when they're, when they're having these comments. Mm, no, I'm very glad you said that. Thank you for saying that. I'm going to read something from your webpage, and and okay. it's beautiful. You've got to go and take the time to read Nate's story. We'll put the link in the show notes. But you said, I'm currently working through my, much of my grief and anger from these years. I have to accept that these years are what they are, and they are gone. And I have learned that the sooner I grieve over this, the quicker I become that much more engaged and appreciative of today. Beautiful. Really got me because so many people that I have worked with over the years is that tremendous trauma associated with grieving for lost time where comments have been made like I just cannot deal with those 20 years that were stolen from me how do mm -hmm. I deal with it so before we launch into the rest of of the story can you tell my audience where are you now with the grieving of the last years what did you do how did you come to accept that that time you can't get back and how are you mentally processing that what is your reconceptualized way of handling that this is going to feel like a launch, but bear with me. It was through inner child. It was through inner child work. It was through me on my own years ago, going through a process of lining up all these childhood photos that I had of myself and surrounding them by my favorite poems, favorite quotes from books, and and applying all of those messages to these different pictures and these different parts of me. And it was integrating and recognizing I have felt apologetic for who I was my entire life. Yet I have fought so hard to be what was normal to other people, what other people considered healthy. And it dug me deeper and deeper into a spiral of more pain. Re-engaging with that five-year-old boy, when I see pictures of him and I remember what he endured, I want to grieve on his behalf so that he feels pleasure again. I am the vessel that offers him that. He can't do that for himself. He lives in so much trauma. He is absolutely in that mindset that you were talking about. He is in his best survival mode. It's my responsibility now to show up for that part of myself and give them the affirmation, the love, and the validation that they need. That includes grieving over what, what was and really getting to a place where you recognize Grief helps you become so present where your day is just different. It doesn't ache the same way anymore. So inner child work was a, a huge part of that and falling in love with that little boy. I mean, like truly looking at him and recognizing you, you see this little face, you see this face of a five or six year old. And then I know at 43 what he went through and it makes me become very alert and very aware of my responsibility to honor that part of me. So I think that's, that's been the primary piece that has helped me. And I don't want to say words like let go because there has, there's been no letting go. It's been a cleansing. It's been, it's letting the grief come through and have that 22 year old who I was so mad at years ago for staying in conversion therapy because he didn't know any different, but having that grief cleanse him to be mindful of what it was like for him, what he was carrying at that time, what he believed to be true, and just learning to respect and honor every single one of those versions of me. 
That's unbelievable. That's so profoundly powerful what you've just said. And it's a lot. And you do talk about that. You have a whole page where you talk about dealing with the inner child. And this is really very, very important. Do you know about the Kintsugi principle in Jap- the Japanese Kintsugi? It's, it's Wait, a, is that when they repair the repair yes. the bowls with gold? Yes. 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 And that's yes. exactly what it's the, it's the, in, in the work that I do, as you know, with, because you follow me and you, and, we've, and you've read my stuff, but I talk about embracing, processing and reconceptualizing. Now, when you did that inner child work that's what you did you went back yeah. and you embraced and you processed you honored at the processing is is, is embraced because when you embrace it's taking it into your fold you didn't reject you embraced so you went from the suppression in the religious kind of intervention to you embracing and then mm-hmm. processing p- through that pain and that grief and accepting it and then you and finding the root of it and then you reconceptualize that so your life was shattered at each of those moments that you had to go back the five-year-old the six-year-old the eight whatever as you said, you you took those pictures, but each time you did a kintsugi kind of principle, because when you embrace, process, and reconceptualize, you you basically confront deconstruct and reconstruct. So if mm. a vase shatters to the ground, the Japanese don't just sweep the pieces away. They meticulously put each, collect each piece and rebuild it with gold lacquer and mm. platinum. So this beautiful new vase exists with all the story. And that's what's so important. That's what you've just said. You you took the five-year-old and you embraced and you honored and then you built, rebuilt that and reconceptualized that the 22-year-old that you were mad at for wasting time going into, you gave us, you forgave and you went and honored that feeling because that's all that the 22-year-old knew at that stage and mm-hmm. so there's the gold lacquer so now you can talk about that there's that vein there is the 22 year old the five year old the, so you've reconceptualized your story how amazing mm. I mean I, I just want to honor and respect you for doing that and for how many people are being helped by just what they're hearing as mm. you say it's not about any one thing it's about you as a human reintegrating your life literally and accepting who you are and and loving who you are that's at the end of the day what what's happened but at the 22 now we're talking 22 when you started with the conversion therapy and you said something just before we started you made a statement and i'd love you to try and recall that statement just before we started recording you spoke about how the sort of religious experience actually led to a lot of bad therapy and bad sort of mindsets and and damage in your and, and even though the intentions were obviously good because that's what they were coming from their position of what they believe was true what it did to you so can you remember what you said yeah i said that the religious leaders were so focused on my sexuality that they overshadowed the trauma and so i did what they told me to do and i i was so hyper focused on therapy where I was just doing these really sick rituals that they had me doing where I was eventually supposedly going to have my sexuality altered. And meanwhile, all of that trauma that I've mentioned prior just laid dormant. It wasn't addressed. And you know, if trauma is not reprocessed, it grows and it really becomes so stagnant and just poison in the way it it reshapes the way that we see and experience everything. And so I spent all of my twenties in pretty intensive conversion therapy, going to the seminars and involved in the different ministries. And I think that that's probably my biggest ache is I was involved in some level pretty intensively for 13 years and had a nervous breakdown when I was 31 years old. And that was a big turning point where I started to recognize, I think that this is actually hurting me. And, and I, I got mad too, where I started to question when, when my body stopped working and my, my mind, my brain, like everything went in its different directions. At that time, the therapist that I had was just wildly ill-equipped and undereducated. And the response was, 
read more Bible verses, pray more. Like, and and I I later was diagnosed with CPTSD. I was in really bad shape. I mean, truly uh, the brink of suicide on a daily basis. And I was in that state for a year with no proper support. So I'd been seeing that therapist for several years. I was sent to an outpatient program where I was for the first time in my life surround with these therapists who came into the room and were giving me my diagnosis. And I looked at their, their cards. My therapist gave me her card and it had so many credentials after her name where I I was like, I've mostly just seen pastors. I've just, I've mostly just seen people who have tender hearts. Like I I just really ill-equipped. I've done so much talk therapy that I've just re-triggered myself most of this this journey so far. So that was a huge turning point where in that outpatient center, I was able to experience relief to a certain degree. And that therapist was really interesting because she pulled me aside at one point and she said, I know that you wrote on your intake paperwork that you don't want to discuss your sexuality. And she said, at some point, there's got to be deeper work here. And she's just left it at that. I looked at her and in my normal response of what I've been taught and thought this secular lady is very dangerous and she's not seeing the bigger picture. I just, I, I just, it was so deeply ingrained in me that that piece still needed to be transformed into something different, but it did give me the introduction into real trauma work where you're working with someone who helps you identify the actual experience of what happened, how old you were when it happened. Yes. And how to reprocess that from a current, current state where it's not as active and it starts to shrink the intensity of the energy around your memories. That began the, I started EMDR right after that. And I would go do intensives. I did like eight hours a day, three days in a row. That's insane. Wow. That's, <laughs> that's heavy. Yeah. I don't, I don't recommend that. Like I look, I look back on that and I don't think that that was healthy. I was, I lived out of state and I just, yeah, I had friends in, in one area. I would fly back there and stay with friends and that's why I did it. But I don't, I don't know that I would recommend that to others, but Wow, no, that's hectic. I read in your page as well that you, I think it was in your 20s, you had that 18 or 19, you had a, a like a little gift, like a consignment store type, right. and that you actually sold that. And what was your life work as a, your, your, what did you say, your, your, your empire was then taken over by some wealthy lady and became her sort of hobby. Yeah. And then you took all that money and poured it into this conversion therapy. And just that, that in itself was a trauma. Just reading that, I felt that, that was a trauma for you as well. and But you were so convicted that, and the, and it sounds to me, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds to me like your experience with trauma ther- conversion therapy was one of trying to tell you that you're a sinner and you've got to change and that, that that's wrong. And never once looking at who you are, Nate, who is Nate, and all about you wrong. You know, this, mm-hmm. that constant message and, and these massive, I mean, that's 13 years you went through that. And here you, you, you're smiling at us. I mean, you've come out of the most horrific experience on top of a horrific experience. You know, like 20, almost what, 33, 30, say 38, you only sort of started getting set free from all of this stuff. 
and and you and you're still smiling and reaching out, which just shows how much hope there is for us and how much resilience we have as humans. I'm sure you don't want anyone to go through what you're going through, which what you went through, which is why you do what you do. But could you give an overarching experience or a describe talk a little bit about the overarching experience of conversion therapy? Because one of the things that really struck me also on your page is you do list your story. You list at the end, you and it, it's fascinating. And I mean, I've heard, I know this because I've read it before, but I like the way you do it, where you list the different groups and how they, most of them have actually left wives and gone back to, where is it now? It's somewhere on your page here, the, the Exodus one and love it, whatever, whatever their different names are, how most of the leaders have actually gone back to their, their sexuality and they're the ones that were the most hard pressed to push right. the conversion therapy onto young guys. So, right. okay, I set the stage now. Can you maybe just take it <laughs> wherever you'd like to take it? I'll tell you this part because I think this is really important. And I hope that anybody who is having any kind of resistance to what I'm sharing right now when it comes to being gay and trusting that there is a God that designed that, I just want you to hear me out and really pause and think through what it would be like if it was you or your kid or your close friend who was so hungry for validation and to be accepted. And the, the, I, I want to say this piece, me being gay has never harmed anyone under any circumstances. Conversion therapy has led thousands to, to, commit, to commit suicide. It has ripped families apart. It has caused so much mental anguish. The piece that you're talking about, when I write a piece, it, it's typically either early in the morning or late at night. And it takes me, you know, a couple of hours to put a piece together. And then I step away for a day and then I go back and read it and do some editing and we'll get feedback. That piece took me two and a half months to write because it was so triggering to just remember what it was like to be. My experience was I had to see a psychologist who did a psychiatric evaluation around me after filling out a Myers-Briggs test. And when I was anxious to see him, I was hopeful that he could help me you know, not feel like this horrific human. And he spent hours just basically making fun of me and said that he had never seen a Myers-Briggs test that was so off the charts. It didn't make any sense. And it really was, it was just, it was so degrading. I look back, I was 20 or 21 and just sat among him. And then this staff at this other ministry that was a living program who really had it out for me. I think from day one, they, they I think that they, there was something in them that recognized this kid's so honest and so hungry that he's going to see through some of the bullshit and he's not going to participate and he's going to walk away. But that, that psychiatrist who wrote that evaluation around me and did that, he was, he lost his license 15 years ago for embezzling 80,000 bucks from one of his clients. He was involved in a a, a money scheme, the amount of deception, the the core roots of the people who stand with conversion therapy. There are several people involved in ministries who have been caught with same-sex sex workers going on trips. I mean, there are people who stand before Congress and refuse to approve gay marriage. And then three weeks later, it comes out that they had a relationship with, you know, someone 25 years younger than them. <laughs> so the, the, the amount of corruption 
in the basis of conversion therapy. I think also like the guy who led love in action was just, I mean, just horrific. And I heard him on a podcast recently and they asked him if he was sorry for the damage that he I did. I listened to that podcast. I think it's did, the same one. Yeah, they asked him about the Daniel. Yeah. Carry on. You, you explain. I, he said, well, part of me knows that I'm in denial, but I can't be responsible for what those families chose for their kids. Yes, these are the people who led this movement who to this day are not connected enough to recognize that their their behavior of seeing, oh my gosh. They've got blood on their hands. I mean, they've got blood on their hands, seriously. And still are not addressing it, like just absolutely want to address it. So conversion therapy, like the weekly meetings are confessing any type of thought that you had that was sexualized. I had a session once where my pastor and a couple of elders laid hands on me to pray the demons out. And I sat. You talk for, about that in, in that article there. Yeah. I sat for two hours and then they were saying, I see the demon, you're, but you have to be willing to let go. And, and again, it was this moment where I was like, oh shit, I'm not letting go. Like, well, I don't, I don't know exactly what to do. And it, it, I mean, just all of it just, so much trauma. So, so this is what I want people to understand. On top of on top of trauma, right, right. So you you came through years of trauma, and then you just got immersed in thirteen years more of making you feel, feel even worse about yourself. Right, right. I told you demon possessed and labeled like the Myers Briggs things that you described. That guy just gave you one label after another. That just increased your levels of shame. So the trauma was just ex- accelerated, and and whatever you think about the most is growing. So you you just were totally and utterly. Infested with trauma. Yeah, kind of gutted. I mean, they, they, it really does. It guts you. But, you know, I think the other piece of the damage is all of the other stuff could have been addressed when I was 18. Had I been with an educated therapist, had I been with someone who had an actual degree and knew or understood trauma. And because it was all faith base, it ended up causing so much more damage. I just, I never had the proper hands come along and just rescue and see a young man who was hurting and needed, needed help. So you, so you were told that you wrong, you're a sinner, say the scriptures, get rid of the demons. And you pretty much had that message with all these horrific things that you may or may not want to discuss that you went through, as opposed to if you'd gone to a proper trauma therapist, they would have helped you to recognize your signals and the behaviors and the perspective that had influenced your life, the root causes and helped you the Kintsugi principle, which you're in now. But you could have, as you said, at 18, you could have got that had you gone for the right help. So right right at this moment, before we go any further, what would you recommend or advise? anyone who's listening to this podcast now who follows you who decides to follow you whoever hears the sound of your voice what would you advise if you have experienced trauma and you're aware if you've experienced trauma or if they whatever sexual trauma if it was a rape if it was a bullying abuse whatever the physical whatever we're not just limiting it to sexuality as you said earlier on and that's one that's another trauma to you talking about trauma what would you advise someone would be the first thing that they should do first I want them to acknowledge that not only was that not supposed to happen, there is no good that was supposed to come out of it. (laughs) It happened because someone chose to do something really evil against them and that that is really unjust and that they deserve to grieve that and feel validated in the pain that they felt. As far as seeking help, the word 
trauma-informed is so important. I think that we're seeing a huge wave around the conversations around talk therapy and how just going and talking about your trauma every week for a year can be highly, highly re-traumatizing. If there's not a modality that's put in place where someone actually does breath work, EMDR, IFS therapy, like just something where somatic experiencing, there's just so many modalities where the trauma is reprocessed, it's moved into and reworked, where you're not living with this torment that's just activated all the time. Good quality, sustainable and natural food and household products are so important for your mental health. What you put on, around and in your body affects how you feel mentally and physically. This is why I love Thrive Market, an online membership-based market on a mission to make healthy living easy and affordable for everyone. Thrive Market has the best selection of high-quality, healthy and sustainable products online. It's a one-stop shop for everything you need organic and essential groceries, clean beauty, safe supplements, and non-toxic home, plus ethical meat, sustainable seafood, clean wine, and more. And their products are ethically sourced. In fact, when you join Thrive Market, you give back. Through Thrive Gives, their one-for-one membership matching program, every paid membership sponsors a free one for a low-income family, making healthy living accessible to everyone. And they have different membership options to suit your lifestyle. You can sign up for the one-month membership for $9.95 a month or their 12-month membership for $5 a month, billed at $59.95 annually. I personally love their huge selection of pantry staples, which makes putting together a delicious and nutritious meal after a long day of work easy, such as their olive oil, avocado oil, and canned tomatoes. I never have to worry about running to the store to make a brain-healthy meal for my family because with Thrive Market, I always have what I need on hand. Join Thrive Market today to get 25% off your first order and an exclusive free gift. The only way to get this offer is by going to thrivemarket.com slash drleaf. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash drleaf to get the exclusive offer of 25% off your first order and a free gift. You can't get this offer anywhere else. Go to thrivemarket.com slash drleaf. The link and offer details will be in the show notes. So we'll be talking about that, Nate, we're talking about what you've just said, just for those listeners and viewers. Nate is talking about trauma work that you actually are trained to be able to recognize the signals, the emotional mm-hmm. and physical, because the physical in your body, the mm-hmm. flight and fright response you go into, the freeze response we go into, the pain in your body, the, even the symptoms like GI symptoms and cardiovascular symptoms and things because your mind works through your brain and your brain's responding. So it's recognizing the symptoms, looking at the, being able to go from the, the symptom, warning signals and symptoms to the behaviors, to the perspective to the roots and being able to reprocess that in that Kintsugi principle. You can't just suppress. It's not going to go away, as you said earlier on. We see, I saw from my research, and I've put that in this in this book, Cleaning Up a Mental Mess, that you, you can see the damage in the brain from suppression. It changes how the brain functions. The different two parts of the brain become very asymmetrical, and there's different wave here's a brain. There's different, so this, these two parts, especially the frontal lobe, the energy levels drop, the blood level drops. It can look like little holes on a spec scan, and in a QEEG, for example, we'll see asymmetry 
symmetry in the alpha wave and you'll see a, a, like tsunamis of the different alpha beta data high, de, high beta delta gamma all the different it's just a mess it's like a huge big mess but when you start embracing like you've just said it starts calming that brain down and that's also what why why I do the work I do is to put tools into people's hands to be able to help them to understand the mind-brain connection which is what you were saying helped you in the beginning with switch on your brain and in my latest book now I've put up the updated trials on how you can actually manage your mind it doesn't remove therapy it, it enhances therapy because you go to therapy but you've got to live with your mind 24 7 so the the, the, the concepts that I, that, um, that I teach that are pretty much what you're also you know talking about this embracing processing and reconceptualizing is a hands-on technique that can use a system that you can use all the time so i just wanted to say that as well so when nate is talking about reprocessing trauma and doing trauma work it is not suppressing it is it's it's doing the really hard work of embracing processing and reconceptualizing and then you get the treatment effect where it gets worse before it gets better you know when you start and that's where you need the breath work where you need the eft where you need the havening where you need the emdr done properly with proper de-escalation because you can have emdr which if it's not done properly can make people worse you know so it's it's just to have everything that that yeah okay so me saying the same thing but i just wanted to give the visuals so people are reoriented back into the brain science as well which is so important when we're talking about the mind brain body connection this is the most factual part about us as humans we have those three things we all do the difference between how we approach it is one modality that works really well for you is not going to work the same way for someone else but if you can begin to learn about your mind, brain, and body, and really have an understanding of how you're carrying these things inside of you, it will give you so much more confidence in how you pursue something where you may try a modality and you are vocalizing to the therapist, this did not work for me. And I actually understand why, here's why. And then you you feel valid and, and affirmed in that. And I, I love that people, people are way more affirmed because they're doing their own work and finding a lot of resources where they're able to approach therapy differently and feel like they're they have agency in that space. That's so important. The agency, the empowerment, the autonomy, that is vital in healing. So the therapist is there not to tell you what to do, which is what you experience in the religious environment and with bad therapy, but to actually facilitate the process, to offer you, hey, this is how your mind and brain work. Like with my work, it's a vehicle. It's not a, a technique. So you can use it as an overarching vehicle, but into that you can put whatever works. And for some people, if you start with trauma EMDR, which I'm not sure where you started, but if you start straight away with trauma EMDR, before you've dealt with the physiological responses in in the in the memories of your DNA of every cell and you've got somewhere between 37 trillion to 100 trillion cells and every cell is storing that trauma if you haven't and that will put you into the flight and fright and whatever physiological response that your body can collapse on you and that you go into sort of automatic mode and you reactive mode and draw upon memories that were that you wired in and reordered your brain into in the state of of the experience but now don't work anymore but you go back to those if you do trauma MDR with maybe at the wrong time before you've dealt with those, it can make things worse. And so it's a good idea to start with more like addiction EMDR from from my understanding is to get addiction EMDR, which actually helps to treat the automatic responses that we go back into, which have been built over years of coping. Get those under control so you learn to control your body and then do trauma EMDR. And I think this is what what you're trying to say is for some people EMDR is just too heavy and they'd rather do maybe the hypnotherapy or a mixture of talk. And you also mentioned that 
just talking for a year can make you even worse because you can just talk in circles. It has to be progressive. It has to keep moving forward. You know, right. That's what the in, in my book, I, I have a whole program in this new book on how to deal with acute trauma, traumatic events, etc. It's, and it's every single place I tell, I tell people to go and speak to therapists, explore different forms of therapy, but you've still got to live with yourself 24-7. So we do have to learn to manage our mind in the moment and self-regulate. And that's so vital in, in this process too. And you seem, you know, you seem to have learned to do that through the experiences you've had and through the therapy that you've had. But yeah, so carry on there with like exploring. You you said you had a bit of a hectic time with EMDR. What happened? Can you talk a little bit about that? Because it's a great modality, but sometimes it doesn't always work if it's not de-escalated or if it's done in the wrong way. Or It, it, it gave me a lot of relief. I think I was doing too much of it. I did have one experience after my third or fourth intensive where we just did not close it out well. And we had gone just really deep into this memory. I got back on a plane the next day, flew home and was pretty severely traumatized. And I don't want to scare people away from EMDR. No, no, it's excellent. But what I want to affirm that you're hearing is that if you can learn about your brain and your body and how it works before diving in and trying to reprocess trauma, you will feel so much more valid in that whole approach instead of going with this huge open wound and saying, clean me up as soon as possible. You're, you have a deep understanding about, oh my gosh, I, I understand what this is. I understand why my body and my brain are doing what they're doing. But I think to also normalize your response to trauma regardless of what it is, if it's addiction, if it's anxiety, if it's depression, that is normal Yes, to something that was abnormal that exactly. happened to you. Exactly. It's a normal response to an adverse experience. So yeah. the current clinical model of saying you have a neuropsychiatric brain disease or that there's something wrong with your brain, that doesn't help you because it's, that's, it's not that your brain that caused it. It's the trauma that you experienced through your life that has mm-hmm. changed the brain. The brain reordered itself in the only way it could for survival. Mm-hmm. And so and it's not sustainable in, in later years. So you have to go and fix that and change that because your brain's wired for love. So it's so true. You've got to, and, and there's so much research coming out and, and my most recent research, I also saw this and then a research study came out. This will be very interesting for you to hear because it confirms that something, a statement you just made. It came, a study came out of Japan and Texas University in this last few months and I also found this in my research in over the last year that the way you view that response, that anxiety, the depression, if you see that as something terrible that needs to be suppressed, that it's something evil, that it's demonic, it's whatever religious or psychiatric term, if, or it's, it's either seen as something demonic that you've got to now pray away or get rid of that demon or something or it's seen as an illness like cardiovascular illness or diabetes and it's not an illness because depression is not an it and anxiety is not an it it's mm-hmm. simply a it's a simply a symptom a descriptive symptom or a warning signal of an underlying cause of so you go through the experience the trauma you wire all this into your brain your body and your mind and to to try and cope and then then you that, then that generates these signals because those are they, they, they what you've wired in is toxic so your brain and body can't handle it. So therefore, we've got to shift our perspective. And in the West, we tend to see those those 
depression anxiety as a clinical diagnosis as an illness as a as a it versus and that doesn't help us it puts our body just into toxic stress but if we view it as oh gosh let me embrace that it's helpful there's a message in it it's telling me something it's okay to feel the depression embrace that and as soon as you shift that perspective of seeing it as being helpful not harmful then you can unpack it and you can rework it and you can do the grieving and the inner child work and the whichever modality you use or Probably a whole mixture, which is at the end of the day, you know, find your combination that works for you as a person. But to to it's to embrace that and not to have the stigma of oh, there's something wrong with your brain. Gosh, no, you just experience adverse circumstances for the majority, large portion of your life, and it was mishandled. You know, and it's sad. And we've got to shift that perspective. And that's why I do the work I do, and obviously why you're doing what you're doing because people mm-hmm. are being harmed by the wrong narrative. Mm-hmm. And our culture really does apply so many bizarre cliches to things. I talk a lot about forgiveness on my platform and I talk about it. Forgiveness is beautiful and wonderful. However, it is not a trauma modality. It's just not, it's not, it's not EMDR. It's not. And, and I think that that's where I have a lot of frustration is when people slap, I use the term that you know saying that forgiveness heals the trauma is like putting a band-aid on a bullet wound. Oh yeah. Yeah. It, no it doesn't. It, it 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 helps you have a different perspective on your own autonomy but that does not heal the trauma. That trauma is inside of your mind and body. It has to come out. Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. So I I think if people felt more valid with a better understanding of Yes, this depression is awful and scary, and this anxiety is awful and scary. But is it normal based on an experience that I've had? Yes. Yes. And is okay, it helpful? Is, yeah. Yeah. Then let's let's get you to a place where we can work through that experience, where it's no longer registered, where you're constantly be alerted and, and, and alarmed by prior experience. Beautifully said. Nate, you said that so beautifully. So instead of seeing it as a as a threat, you see it as, okay, accept it and see it as helpful and look at why you feel that way as opposed to, mm-hmm. oh, it's bad to feel that way. Let's slap the band-aid on whether it's the scripture, mm-hmm. the forgiveness, the it's, it's just a, a straight CBT technique, which also just like slapping a band-aid on if you don't, or a positive affirmation or 10 gratitude statements. Those will work only if you've actually done the work of embracing, processing and reconceptualizing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I agree with you. The wellness industry is, and the self-help industry is so full of cliches that sometimes can do more harm than good mm-hmm. yeah and we've mm-hmm. got to do, you know we've got to do that work the, i often say the only way out is through you know and it's it's true it's like if you're gonna the treatment effect I, I saw this in in my research trials where we saw the the peaks at day 21 and day 63 the treatment effect is you 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 will get worse before you get better. So like some of our patients in our experimental group, they said, okay, I still feel depressed, but I am not depressed. I feel depressed because of. That's so radically mm-hmm. different to, so they, they've done what you what you said, said uh, that, that depression is there, but it's a normal response to an adverse circumstance and it's reordered my brain and it's in my body. I need to find what and how and reorder it and rebuild it. And, and that takes, and that, so that's what we need to be doing. And to affirm, you're going to feel crazy in that process. That's normal because you've got this thing that's registered in you that was never meant to be there. You've got this experience that's altered what you were meant to what you were meant to know about your your mind and body. So I, I always want to just affirm someone that where they understand. Yeah, it's if you think about anxiety, I I, I posted this recently. It is used in negative connotation, but anxiety is actually this powerful tool 
of a memory giving you the heads up that something's going on that doesn't feel safe. Exactly. That is profound. Exactly. That is profound exactly. that that's how our bodies work. It's, it, 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 that's what this whole book, Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess, is about. I teach you from the, the get-go that when you've got that toxic, this thing, you're, like you said, this is not what you're supposed to, you were supposed to experience that, that childhood trauma, that abuse, that, right. those years and years. That was not what you were wired for. So therefore, you reacted in the ways that you did because that was your brain ordering. So we've got to look at that in that way. When we shift our mindset, this thing creates a toxic swirl of energy in the, in the mind and the brain recognizes this like it's a virus so it tries to push it out and that's why we, we when we get depression or we get signals in our body like gi symptoms or you know heart palpitations that is our body and our brain and our mind telling us hey pay attention there's something okay. there that shouldn't be there and you've got to now do the kintsugi principle you've got to embrace process and reconceptualize and that takes the different yeah. modalities of therapy it takes 24 7 our mind is always working so we've got to also have a way of working with our mind and that's why i'm so hot nate on teaching about and making it as simple as I can, 38 years of scientific research that I've that I've put into the neurocycle, which is the you notice the five steps from this book, but in my I've updated it now in this called the neurocycle. But it's pretty much how you can manage your mind 24-7. And then you can it's a, it's a, like a vehicle. So it's how you use your mind to draw on the inner wisdom to be able to deal with the stuff. You know, and, and, and on top of dealing with the trauma, there's also the day-to-day stuff. I mean, how do you handle, Nate, for example, you're sitting there working and you get a toxic comment or, or someone attacks you from the you know your previous church life and someone tries to come and you know, download on you or say something toxic to you. How do you handle a moment like that? You know, that's 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 a toxic moment. So let me let me ask you, how would how do you deal with something like that? Because that's life. That doesn't phase me that much anymore, honestly. I, you know, every day, and you know this when you have a following that's growing online. I just I look at it and I everything that I'm sharing is from my perspective and my experience. And I'll have people write some just really nasty stuff at times. And I just look at it and I think that's where they're at. And there's something about my story that hits something in them that they don't know how to connect with. And this is the only way they know how to make that feeling go away. It's it's not my responsibility. But I, I would say regardless, breathwork has been a lifeline for me where learning to just really activate a smooth rhythm inside of my body. And I have ceremonies for myself all the time. I showed you, you know, where I live. I've got this beautiful view of the Rocky Mountains and I'll turn all the lights on and just light candles and lay down on my back and do breath work quite often. And let me clarify this by saying, if you've experienced a lot of physical trauma, breath work is so hard to begin with. It's so hard, but if you if you trust over time that you do have the tools and you do have the resources to help the younger parts of you that have been harmed you will find an unbelievable connection there where over time it becomes a default to just take a breath and and step away and go inward constantly honoring like what what is triggered what you know what got what got hit here so i'm i'm thankful that I'm able to see and recognize, and, and, and you, you, I'm sure you've had this experience too. Someone will say something really bizarre and nasty, and you're reading it, thinking, "I don't even know how that is connected to what to what I'm saying," but it just doesn't hit the same way that it used to because of my connection to all of those prior triggers, and it's harmful for sure. It's absolutely it 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 it, it hurts to be misunderstood or dismissed when you're trying to help people, but it has nothing to do with us. 
That's really good. That's wonderful. I love what you said about the breath work, about the fact that it doesn't hit as badly anymore. And the way that I manage it is through recognizing that, okay, that's, I'll go through this five step process of, of embracing a processing and reconceptualizing. And so I try to transform it. So it's, in other words, we, we can, we can take, we don't have to let that information be absorbed into us anymore, which causes that terrible pain. We can see it differently and see where that's where they're at. As you said so beautifully, that's where they're at. And yes, it's insane or it's crazy or it's nasty or it's unnecessary or it's like go to your own platform and spew that nonsense there or whatever but you you get to a point where you don't let you you deflect it you don't absorb mm-hmm. it anymore and that's mm-hmm. yeah so that's a lot of what i teach as well is how to manage that and you can learn to do that you can be in an argument and calm yourself down through managing your mind because we're able to do that every 10 seconds and i love what you said about breath work we as a family every literally we try every single night to do wim hof i don't know if you know who wim hof is mm-hmm. he's the ice man and i've interviewed yeah, yeah, him a yeah. few times and we've we're friends and so we learned his techniques and my and my son-in-law is obsessed with him. So at nighttime, we we try every night to do sort of 15 minutes of Wim Hof breathing. And it's mm-hmm. transformational. And you also said another thing that's so powerful. When someone's been in trauma, it's very scary to close your eyes and do breath work. Because mm-hmm. when you're doing breath work, you are putting oxygen into your brain. And your brain then, your brain just does what your body tells it, what your mind, not body. Your brain is a responder. It doesn't generate anything. It is a pure responder. If you're dead, your brain can't do anything. So the only reason your brain is doing anything and your body's doing anything is because you are alive. You have a mind. You nated, you thinking, feeling, and choosing 24-7, not even a three-second break, you are responding to life and through your mind. And then and that goes to, your mind uses your brain to actually then build the memories in of what you're experiencing and then from the memories you act. And that's what we do as humans. And so when you're breathing, the reason why people that have experienced traumatic events find it incredibly triggering and hard to do initially is because it's it's t- taking you it's resetting from the deepest part of your brain from behind your brain the PAG the, you actually reset the how the, the brain is functioning and it kind of switches the brain on and if you do the deep deep breathing and holding your breath in the different combinations and different ways you're pushing a lot of oxygen into your body you into the cells of your body you're releasing adrenaline you're changing your neurochemical status you're changing your energy balance in your brain and that in itself triggers trauma and that's why it's so important that maybe sometimes to start with breathing with your eyes open and to start mm-hmm. with basic stuff and also to not ever push yourself to, I have, well, they're doing it and everyone says this, but you said that earlier on, we don't have to do what everyone else is doing. It's our own right. journey. Right. You know, that's one of the pieces that you mentioned. Yeah. And I think too, being still is really hard when you're trying to process trauma. So when people say things like, oh, just breathe. Okay, do you have any idea what you're saying? Like my body is so activated out at and the I'm moment, so confused. Yeah. yeah. The last thing I want to do is breathe. I want to scream. I want to break something. Yeah. <laughs> the my most my most successful, I only use one modality in coaching. I am very much anti-coaches using trauma modalities. I think that's wildly inappropriate. But the one thing that I do that's incredibly safe with my clients is guided breath work. And that has been huge to build a foundation with intention around them reconnecting with the part of themselves that feels activated and afraid and just continually grounding and saying, how old are you now? Do you have resources that can offer that younger version of you something to at least let them know that they survived? And it's that person connecting saying, okay, yes, I do. I I do know that I can do that. But that that has been probably one of the most powerful movements of seeing someone take ownership and say, I am terrified of what they experienced. However, I'm starting to recognize that I today 
have tools just because of my age that can address this far better than that younger version of me. So if I can just be kind to that younger version of me who's carried and stored this memory, and they live in that memory. My my five and six-year-old self, he lives in all of the trauma that happened because he then had to take on the role of survival and that's not natural. So then that's his, that's his ammo. That's his goal. That's his whole motive. It's me going to him and saying, Hey, is another way. Yeah. I, I've got this, but I have to establish a relationship with them. I have to get him to tell me my story and I have to get him to rest. And then what happens over time, the triggers that you normally feel around your younger self, it's dissolved because you've shrunk, you've shrunk that gap between where you are today. Yeah, exactly. You've taken the energy because energy is always transferred. It's never lost. Right. So you've taken the energy from that five-year-old in that total trauma response, which was pure survival, and you've converted it into this energy. And so you've got something else. So it's been converted and this then loses its power and this gains power. And then you just remember the part like you can talk about your five-year-old child now and it still makes you sad, but you have control over it. You've repurposed it. It's so vital. And let me let me share this about inner child work. And this is what I try and tell my clients all the time. I have felt crazy because of the way that I've interpreted my own process. I, I literally did this stuff by myself, but then seeing people have results from it has been in, incredibly exciting. But but what what it is the the key is like if you imagine me today, forty three, standing in front of one of my abusers, who at this point would be in his sixties, seventies. Would there be a reaction in my body standing in front of him? Yes. Do you know who's reacting? That 12 and 13-year-old is reacting because as a 43-year-old, I can look at that man, deck him in the face, knock his ankles out from under him, and articulate how inappropriate he was. But my 12, 13-year-old is going to go nuts in his presence because the level of fear and anxiety, me having a relationship with that 12 or 13-year-old, is me taking him out of harm's way and putting him behind me. So, so I am addressing that abuser as a 43-year-old, not a 12-year-old. And listen, we all do it. I spent my whole life with my inner child trying to address things on my behalf, not knowing this part of me deserves protection. And in order for me to integrate and have strength and power here, I've got to get this younger version of me, safe, validated, affirmed, and then put behind me. Wow. Nate, unreal. I could talk to you for hours. We could, we've been going for like over an hour and I've got another interview now. So I have to, I have to close off and I don't want to, but I would love to invite you back again. It's been a, an incredible conversation and thank you for your wisdom, your honesty, your authenticity, your advice. I know so many people have been set free. I feel like I've, I've been in this field for 38 years, but I feel like I've just learned a whole lot of new stuff just talking to you. And I want to thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Just let's wrap up by telling, tell people where they can find out more about you and get in contact with you. Yeah, the easiest way, my website's natepost.com. My coaching website is storyconnectcoaching.com. And then on social media, it's nate underscore postal weight. Little complicated, but you'll find it if you Google my name. We'll also put all the links in the show notes so they'll be able to get hold of you. And I want to thank you again for coming on the show. It was phenomenal. And we will continue the conversation for sure. That, That sounds great. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter 
where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.